What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Dr. Kimberly Mack, author of Fictional Blues, Narrative Self-Invention from Bessie Smith to Jack White. Dr. Kimberly Mack is an assistant professor at the University of Toledo, where she specializes in African-American literature and culture, 20th and 21st century ethnic American literature, autobiographical narratives, and American popular music. Her book, Fictional Blues, was published by the University of Massachusetts Press as part of their African-American intellectual history series. Kimberly's second book, The Untold History of Early American Rock Criticism about the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color and white women who helped develop American rock journalism during the 1960s and 1970s, is under contract with Bloomsbury Academic. And her third book, 33 and a Third, Living Colors, Time's Up, will be published by Bloomsbury in spring 2023. Kimberly is also a creative nonfiction writer and music critic. She has contributed her work to national and international publications, including Music Connection, No Depression, Relix, Pop Matters, and Hot Press. In this conversation, we discuss Kim's revelation that she was a writer at the age of nine, her fraught relationship with journalism, how her love of rock music led to her discovery of the blues and writing her first book, and why at the end of the day, she wants you to remember that she is a storyteller, period. Black and published family, let's welcome Dr. Kim back to the show. Dr. Kimberly Mack, thank you for joining me on Black and Published today. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, excuse me. (laughs) I always like to start the interview by asking, when did you know that you were a writer? Yeah, so um, I was kind of a precocious kid. Um, According to my mother, I was reading around three, and then I think writing came pretty quickly after that. And I was always really interested in stories. I loved reading stories. Um, I remember writing a lot of stories as a kid, um, like as early as first grade. Um, And then somewhere, I think I'm pretty sure it was nine years old, was when I first told family members that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And, um, And I don't know why, but I do remember having this kind of interesting or weird relationship to writing or talking about it. Because I remember a relative asking or saying after I said I wanted to be a writer, oh, you want to be a journalist. And I remember at the time actually being kind of uh, a little bit frustrated by that. And it's funny in retrospect, because I did become a journalist. I became a music critic and, and journalist, and I still do that. Um, in addition to being other, I do other kinds of writing too. And, um, but for some reason I did, I guess I just didn't really understand at that point what storytelling 
was and that stories could be told in many different forms and styles. So I think in my mind, it's like, oh, no, I want to tell stories like the ones I read in the books I love and I want to do creative writing. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. And so I remember having a weird relationship to journalism really until later. Um, even when I was a teenager, I was still like, I don't want to be a journalist. I don't want to write about other people's stuff they're doing. I want to do stuff, but I just didn't understand that storytelling is storytelling. So I find that a lot of the people that I've talked to who have eventually gone on to do creative work always started at with journalism, myself included. Do you think that's because, I don't know if it's like this in other households, but that because in Black communities, we don't often see people who are like actual creative writing authors enough beyond the few big names we get a year that we don't even, like we know those people exist because they write the books that we read, but we don't really know how to get there. So it's okay, well, I want to be a writer. Well, there's a newspaper, there's the Ebony, there's the Jet, there's the Essence. So I'm going to be a journalist because that's that's what's tangible. Yes, I think that's true. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that probably, you know, I didn't know any of that at the time, but I think, uh, that was kind of what was fueling my frustration with it because in my mind, I was thinking, well, I want to write stories like the ones that I, you know, that mommy buys me, you know, like I want to write those stories. Um, but yeah, I think it was to some degree, just, um, not having the, yeah, not having the um, the sense that that's something that's available um, and just more like, oh, here's the tangible and also just practical, right? Like it's much more practical, I think, to think about, you know, um, being a journalist than it is being a, a novelist or a memoirist or any of those other things. Um, you know, if someone's going to say they're going to be a writer and they're nine years old, that um, being a journalist is something that you can you know, it's, it's, it's tangible. It's, it, it seems almost like more of like a real job in a way, I guess. So then going from like nine years old and, and knowing you wanted to be a writer, a creative kind of writer, having an, a weird, almost like love hate relationship with journalism. How did your journey take you to becoming a scholar at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've done, I've, you know, I've had quite the uh, journey um, in my writing life. And so, um, so I continued through school writing and I actually did become eventually the editor of my school newspaper. Um, and then, but still having this weird relationship with journalism, you know, I want other people to write about the books I write again, not understanding that journalists tell stories also. Um, and then I ended up going to NYU undergrad for playwriting and screenwriting. I was in Tisch school of the arts and, um, and so that, and I just grew up adoring musical theater and theater in general, but musical theater in particular and, um, and musicals, I should say. And, um, so yeah, I was all about being a playwright at that time. And, um, and then that morphed into screenwriting and, um, and then I was, so that's what I did, um, through college and my senior thesis was a screenplay. And then um, post-college, I worked in film production in New York City. Um, and then, you know, and then at some point 
I wanted to get back to prose. So then I pursued an MFA in creative writing and I moved to Los Angeles and, um, and I did an MFA and, um, and interestingly enough, I was doing fiction at the time when I was doing the MFA, but, um, I don't creatively, I do nonfiction now, creative nonfiction. That's what I do, but I did fiction. I focused on fiction in the MFA program. And then, um, I, I just, I didn't really, I knew I wanted to, to, have a job, you know, like I wanted, you know, I, I was no longer doing film production. I didn't want to be in film anymore, you know, so I did the weird thing and I moved to LA when I didn't want to be in film anymore. Um, but I knew that I wanted to, uh, you know, teach and have a career that was going to allow me to have, to use my brain, um, but also have some space to do work too, you know, to have my writing supported. And, but I really didn't understand how academia worked at all. I, 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 I still marvel at being in the position I'm in now because I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I did the MFA to become a better writer, but also I knew that was a terminal degree and I could teach with it. Um, but I didn't really know how academia worked. And so then I was a, um, adjunct and I was teaching, you know, part-time multiple places doing that thing. And then at some point I hit a ceiling and then I learned like, oh no, if you want a job, job, like a full-time job in academia where you will have summers to write and that sort of thing, then you need to do a PhD. And I had an idea for a book that I wanted to write that was more along the lines involving music. In the middle there, I became a music critic in between there. Oh, um, we don't go back. <laughs> we'll come back to that journalist. But then I just had this idea of a book that I would need more training. And so I thought, okay, so I'm going to try to do a PhD. And I ended up, I was in Los Angeles and I ended up going to UCLA. So I did my PhD in English at UCLA. And um and and I ended up having a wonderful uh, advisor who became my dissertation chair and mentor who who knew I had been um, a music critic and journalist and who knew that I was interested in life writing and memoir. And also, obviously, I was in a English department, a literature department. So he said to me. Um, and I'm going to shout him out because he's amazing, Richard Yarborough. He said, unprovoked, um, when we were starting to talk about what this dissertation might look like, he said, you know, I don't want you to think that you need to um, just kind of like uh, disconnect all these parts of you, you know, and be a, be, a, be a music person over here and a life writing person over there and a literary critic over here, a literary scholar. If you can find a way to bring music into your dissertation, then I think you should do that. And so I ended up creating a project that brought all of these things together. And that project eventually became this book that I have now. Okay, so that's a lot. So first, (laughs) where did you go for your MFA? So I went to Antioch. Um, So I did the low residency program at Antioch University of Los Angeles. And so I didn't have to actually move to LA, but it was a good excuse for me to 
finally leave New York. I was born and raised, born and raised in Brooklyn. And then I went to NYU undergrad and I lived in New York until I was 32 years old. I never went away to school. And um, I always kind of, you know, regretted not having left. So it was just an excuse for me to finally leave. <laughs> okay. And so where between undergrad in screenwriting, play- playwriting, working in film production and going to Antioch, does the music critic come in? Yeah. That's a whole so, career. <laughs> yeah, I've done, I've done many things. So yeah, so um, I'm going to shout somebody else now, out too now. So I was working at it. I was doing my MFA at Antioch. And one of the wonderful things, I don't know if they still have it, but I completed my MFA in 2003. Um, but at that time, they had something called a field study. And um, you needed to do with it, working with a mentor, you know, somebody who's in the field doing this thing related to writing, um, but something you haven't done. Um, And I decided that I, I always uh, wanted to be, um, you know, involved in music in some way. And once I got over my weird, I don't want to be a journalist thing sometime in my twenties, I was like, I I think I really want to, you know, do the music critic thing. Um, and I, again, I didn't really understand, you know, as I said, I had that weird thing with journalism, but I think I didn't, I didn't understand the difference between a journalist and a critic. And anyway, I, but I was always interested because I grew up loving, um, rock music and my mother loved rock music and she had, um, Rolling Stone and Cream magazines and rock magazines in her, you know, around the house. And I grew up reading them and devouring them. And, um, you know, and just wanting to to learn more about these incredible stories of these incredible rock stars and and the writers themselves, you know, it was a time when the writers themselves would put themselves in the story. So I was just really enthralled with all this, this cool storytelling. So I it was in the back of my mind that that I that I would want to be a critic at some point. So um, when the field study thing came up, I thought, oh, that's it you know, so I'm 32 and, um, and I'm thinking, well, if I'm ever going to do it, I better do it. And so I ended up doing this mentoring thing with Greg Tate, who, um, is a legend and he was at the village voice for a long time and, you know, also wrote for Rolling Stone and other places. Um, but you know, he's a black writer who, um, you know, did a lot of writing about rock and a lot of other things in hip hop too, but, Um, but I just totally admired him and I got to work with him. And, and then from that point on, I started, you know, first I was working for free and then eventually I started working for pay and just, you know, freelancing. And, um, so I did that. Um, and I still, I still do that. Um, I recently did something for no depression, um, just last year. So I still do it. Yeah. What was your favorite genre of music to write about when you were doing music criticism? Rock music. Yep. Yeah. And I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a, um, so, you know, I have this book that, you know, we'll we'll talk a little more about. um, That's more of the um, kind of like a critical, you know, scholarly book, but I also have a, another book that, um, that's upcoming. And, um, it's in the 33 and a third series, which is, you know, those small books about records. And so I'm going to be doing one on time's up by living color. And I'm a big, um, 
you know, I'm all about rock and I'm all about black folks in rock and black folks involved in rock. And so um, I'm kind of like preaching the gospel of that at the moment. So then if your favorite genre is rock and then you get to this PhD program where you're integrating all sides of yourself, how do you get to the blues? (laughs) Oh, such a great question. Well, so, all right. (laughs) How do we get to the blues? So the blues, of course, uh, is where rock came from, you know, so Rock came from the blues and then rhythm and blues. Um, and, you know, and this is this is the thing. This is what's so important to me right now about really talking about this and and um, and getting you know, getting this out there is that when I was growing up, I thought I was an interloper. You know, like this is what was natural because my mother really loved rock music. Um, and she's she was born in 46 and loved rock and roll and then just stuck around for rock and rock when rock you know, I don't understand why suddenly became white, was never white, but it became that. Um, and, but she, anyway, she continued to love it. And so I just grew up with it. Um, and I loved it too, but I thought I was an interloper. You know, I didn't really understand that, um, that rock music was black music. You know, I thought it was white music. Um, so so, you know, so I was really, really into it. And as I said, really into these magazines and really into these stories and, and, you know, and the, and just sort of like the bombastic way that the writers would, you know, kind of talk about rock and, and again, the writers would mythologize themselves. And I thought this was all kind of new. And then I realized, I discovered that actually, you know, this is what blues people did, you know, and this is all kind of coming out of a, you know, sort of a storytelling, self-mythologizing, persona building blues tradition. And I wanted to, and I didn't know a lot about the blues. I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up. My my grandmother liked it um, a bit, but um, she didn't play it much. So I, I knew what the blues was, but I didn't, that wasn't what I was hearing in my house. Um, so yeah. So later when I was thinking about um, popular music and and knowing that I wanted to um, bring popular music into my my research, um, I just thought I want to talk about stories. I want to talk about life writing. I want to talk about memoir. I want to talk about autobiographical expression, and um, and you know, and I was interested in myth and all these things. Well, why not the blues? It makes sense. And so I kind of did it backwards, you know, because I knew I, you know, I knew all this stuff about rock, but I didn't know as much about blues. And so I so I did it the opposite. But obviously, they, you know, all the rockers, you know, they got everything, everything they 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 learned, all this, all the stage stuff, everything was coming out of that. Um so so yeah, it it I, I flipped it, but you really need both, you know, they both work in concert. So it makes sense for me to have, you know, learned a lot about both. Would you say that rock music is to the blues, what hip hop is to R and B? Yeah. That's an interesting way of putting it, but I also say that I actually think that the blues is also a precursor to hip hop, you know, in much the same way. You know, I think that the blues is also, you know, 
in terms of the storytelling, in terms of the, you know, the, all the stuff that I talk about in my book, um, in, 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 I'm talking about the, you know, the current book, um, the fictional blues book, you know, I think you can apply it. I think it's portable. And I think you can talk about hip hop in a similar way. No, as you're talking, I keep hearing the, um, the Kanye West, Kanye West Jay-Z song where they sampled Otis Redding and mm-hmm. Kanye was always known for his samples. And I cannot think of the name of the, of their song, but I know it's Find a little tenderness. Yeah. Find a little tenderness. And then they, they sampled it for, uh, the watch the throne album. So that I keep hearing that, that refrain and, or even what Nas did with his father, um, several, several albums ago, but his father was playing harmonica or some instrument on him, but it was was very bluesy Mm. and and makes me think of that. When did you make the connection or where in your research did you make your connection that I love rock, but that's not the beginning of the story? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 I, I wish I could say I knew that when I was a kid, but no, that definitely came later and that definitely came yeah, probably sometime in my in my twenties um, somewhere is when I, I I learned that, and and it wasn't until yeah, it wasn't until my twenties somewhere, and probably on the earlier side, but twenties before I recognized and really fully understood that um, you know that rock music belonged to me as much as it belonged to anybody else, you know, as a black person, I, it it took me a while to get there and I didn't really fully, you know, so many, there were good rock stars who um, were very clear about their influences and, um, and weren't appropriators. And then there were bad rock stars who, who were the epitome of that because they would erase, you know, I'm not going to, say who, but yeah, I mean, everybody knows who, but, um, you know, but, um, so, but, but, but I knew I was aware that, that the blues was a great influence for a lot of the rock bands I liked and artists I liked, but I just didn't, um, I just didn't, I just didn't know a lot about it. And I also wasn't thinking about it in terms of storytelling until later. It just took me a while to, to get to, um, it just took me a while to get to, again, the myths. And, you know, I think one of the things that attracted to me to rock was, you know, A, the the performance, right? The personas, um, the larger than life characters, you know, and, and again, just these, um, you know, the, the, the big mythologies of, of the bigness of a lot of the artists. But I didn't know that the blues folks were doing that. And they were, and a lot of them were getting it from them until later. But as soon as I learned that, then it was like, okay, no, I need to know all about this. And, you know, in 2011, so I entered my PhD program in 2007, 2011 was when um, I started doing um, the serious work of figuring out what my dissertation was going to be. And, um, and then I um, did, you know, like two years of really intensive research on blues and did the, a massive sort of epic 17 day trip to Clarksdale, Mississippi and um, Oxford, Mississippi and Memphis, Tennessee and Chicago, um, Nashville. Um, I think that's it. 
And, you know, and I almost by myself and, you know, went to archives and museums and, you know, just did the whole thing as part of that. So I had a bit of a learning curve. I mean, I had a very strong foundation again in, in rock and roll and rock music um, and, 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 and pop music to some degree, but I didn't have the foundation in blues. So I had to kind of learn it um, and then bring it all together with the other things I wanted to talk about. Um, so that was, you know, that was a, a good, you know, four years of just working on getting to the point where the dissertation was done. Um, but then my book actually, um, I, sh- I want to say is it, it came out of the dissertation, right. But I think something like 30% of it remained. So the book is actually a, a new thing. It's like a different, similar framework, but a different book. I just want to say that. How far back into blues history did you go? Like, give me a year. Yeah. So um, I start the book with Stegoli um, and the whole um, myth of the bad man. And so that's going back to 19th century, you know, the very end of, uh, you know, like 1895. So. Wow. And you said that the book has now become its own entity. It's only in maybe one third of the dissertation. What was your process from going from scholarly dissertation that you're defending to creating this narrative nonfiction work, creative nonfiction work that is, mm-hmm. yes, it's a, a, an academic thing, but it's people can pick it up and read it like the warmth of other suns or something. Well, yeah. And, 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 and that is that is my goal. <laughs> um, and um, that that is I have been committed to that, invested in um, trying to uh, do work that is smart, you know, but also readable. And um, and I don't think that's that's uh, controversial in any way, but it it, it isn't something that. Um, everyone is committed to in academia. And I feel like um, that for me, that's what I want to do. Um, and so the very first thing <laughs> is figuring out the through line, the narrative through line, and um, and really thinking about it as a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, and each chapter builds on the other chapter. So that's just like basic. And um, And when I did that, then I realized that my project, and I already had hopes for this when it was in the dissertation phase being historical, but I realized it's really historical because this is a story about, my book is about story. It's a story about storytelling. Um, So in order for me to do this the right way, I had to start way back, as I was saying, in the 19th century, I had to start from the beginning. You know, I had to think about, um, you know, because my book is a, is a making an argument for the blues as a storytelling art form making an argument for the blues as not just a storytelling art form, but one where blues people make themselves through being, you know, like autobiographical fictions, you know, like, like these autobiographies are made up versus, you know, the ways in which I think historically people have thought about the blues um, as being, you know, the work of, um, of a certain person, a certain kind of person, usually that's racialized, you know, um, 
black people from a certain uh, class background or a certain geographical area or even a certain time frame and it's naturalized right like everything they're doing it's just like um natural you know it's like uh but i think what gets lost in there is the uh professionalism the artistry the careful construction of a persona the things that they were doing in the early 20th century to like have a fan base, you know, not unlike what artists do now. And I think it got romanticized and made to be something that it wasn't quite, you know, so, so I'm really interested in, yeah. How did folks make up stories about their lives? How did folks, you know, build personas to make people want to come and see their, see them at the country dance, you know, like, how did they do this? And so for me, the thing to make it less strictly scholarly and more, let me bring in a broader audience was making sure that my book about storytelling was actually telling a story, (laughs) starting historically, um, having like a wide range of artists in it, um, artists that are in this conversation with like a Ma Rainey or a Bessie Smith or a big mama Thornton, but that are current. And, um, and then, yeah, just really having a commitment to language that's readable and accessible. Okay. But one more question before we get to the book, cause we got to get to it. Um, so in, in writing this, it, the stories that you're telling are both of person and persona, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, right. So I'm telling, so I should say it's, um, looking at, uh, fictional characters, like as in work in works of fiction, you know, like, so I'm, I, you know, I'm a, I'm an English professor. Um, so looking at books like the color purple and Suge Avery, the character in there, and then also looking at real life people like big mama Thornton. You know, so it's both. Okay, so we got to get to the book. I'm going to read the description and then I'll let you take it away with your reading. So fictional blues, narrative self-invention from Bessie Smith to Jack White. It is the familiar story of Delta blues musician Robert Johnson, who sold his soul to the devil at a Mississippi crossroads in exchange for guitar virtuosity and the violent stereotypes evoked by legendary blues badmen like Stego Lee undergird the persistent racial myths surrounding authentic blues expression. Fictional blues unpacks the figure of the American blues performer, moving from early singers such as Ma Rainey and Big Mama Thornton to contemporary musicians such as Amy Winehouse, Rhiannon Giddens, and Gary Clark Jr. to reveal that blues makers have long used their songs performances, interviews, and writings to invent personas that resist racial, social, economic, and gender depression. Using examples of fictional and real-life blues artists pulled from popular music and literary works from writers such as Walter Mosley, Alice Walker, and Sherman Alexie, Kimberly Mack demonstrates that the stories blues musicians construct about their lives, however factually slippery, are inextricably linked to the primary story 
of the narrative blues tradition in which autobiography fuels musicians' reclamation of power and agency. And I'll take it away. Okay, so I'm just going to read um, a little bit. This is just the, the first few pages of the first chapter of the book that's called The Narrative Blues Tradition, Tall Tales, Myths, and Black American Folklore. The earliest written down version of the Staggerly Ballad that San Angelo, Texas art teacher Ella Scott Fisher sent to folklorist and teacher John Lomax on February 9, 1910, begins as follows. Twas a Christmas morning, the hour was about 10, when Staggerly shot Billy Lyons and landed in the Jefferson pen. Oh, Lordy, post-Agali. In her note, Fisher states, This is all the verses I remember. The origin of this ballad, I have been told, was the shooting of Billy Lyons in a barroom on the Memphis levee by Stack Lee. The song is sung by the Negroes on the levee while they are loading and unloading the river freighters, the words being composed by the singers. The characters were prominently known in Memphis, I was told, the unfortunate Stagalee belonging to the family of the owners of the Lee line of steamers, which are known on the Mississippi from Cairo to the Gulf. I give all this to you as it was given to me. The effect of the song with its minor refrain is weird, and the spoken interpolations add to the realism. It becomes immensely personal as you hear it, like a recital of something known or experienced by the singer, unquote. An incomplete record of the ballad, just 10 stanzas, was later included in American Ballads and Folk Songs, published by John Lomax and his son, Alan Lomax, in 1934. The ballad tells the dramatic tale of an African-American bad man named Stagalee, who shot another Black man called Billy Lyons dead on the barroom floor with his 44 Gatlin gun. This early version was based on the real-life story of William Lyons's shooting death at the hands of Lee Shelton, a.k.a. Stack Lee, in a St. Louis, Missouri saloon on Christmas night in 1895. However, it did not include details that would emerge in later published versions and in earlier variants circulated orally, reflecting the true events of that evening. One missing detail in particular stands out the fact that Shelton killed Lyons in part because of a Stetson hat. And according to a story on December 26, 1895, in the St. Louis Globe Democrat, quote, when his victim fell to the floor, Sheldon took his hat from the hand of the wounded man and coolly walked away, unquote. Staggerly, Stackerly, Staggerly, Stackoly, Stackley, Stackoly. These are just a few of the names for the folk hero whose story, the essence of which is unchanged from song to song, resonates for generations of Black people in general and Black men in particular. The Stagley tale has been performed as songs and instrumentals in a jazz style by artists such as Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway, as a blues song by more than 100 blues men and women, including Ma Rainey and Mississippi John Hurt, and as an R&B or soul song by Lloyd Price, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Ike and Tina Turner, and the Isley Brothers. In the version of the Staggerly ba Ballad that circulated during the 1930s in Texas and Louisiana, one collected by John Lomax, after Staggerly goes to prison and he briefly runs away, he's recaptured and killed by Chief Maloney. While in real life, it appears that Shelton, who was involved with the Democratic Party, and Lyons, a member of the influential Republican Party, had a deadly argument over politics, in this version and in others, the two spar over a gambling disagreement. 
In this variant, Stagoli has a reputation that precedes him. When the police chief comes looking for Stagoli in the bar, he finds him, quote, drunk and lying on the barroom floor, unquote. When the chief asks the bartender who that is, the bartender replies, quote, speak softly. It's that bad in Stagoli, unquote. In this iteration, there's a mention of the hat, quote, slowly Stack walked from the table. He said, I can't let you go with that. You win all my money and my milk white Stetson hat, unquote. He is no longer the post-Stagali from the version Miss Fisher gifted to John Lomax. He is now a bad inn who is feared by the teller, the local community, law enforcement, and even ultimately the devil. The hangman put the mask on, tied his hands behind his back, sprung the chap on Stagali, but his neck refused to crack. Hangman, he got frightened. He said, chief, you see how it be. I can't hang this man. You better let him go free, unquote. Of course, Chief Maloney does not let Stagley go free, opting instead to shoot him, quote, six times and decide, unquote. Stagley finds himself in hell, playfully fighting with a new friend. Stack, he told the devil, come on, let's have a little fun. You stick me with your pitchfork and I'll shoot you with my 41. Stagley say, now, now, Mr. Devil, if me and you gonna have some fun, you play the cornet, Black Betty, beat the drum, unquote. In the 1930s coda in which Stagoli and the devil play music together is a preview into not only how the Stagoli folktale became part of blues lore, but also how the bad man more generally became part of the blues tradition. So first, because it just caught me off guard, in what Isley Brothers song is the Ballad of Stagoli? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, so that song, Stagoli, there's, you know, there's like a million versions of it, um, you know, and the original song um, uh, was written by uh, Lloyd, Lloyd Price. Um, but then there are just like a million versions of that song. Um, and you probably know the tune if you heard it. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just, you know, but people kind of remade the same song over and over again. But Lloyd Price's was the first. Okay. And then in, in listening to you go through the ballad and as many different iterations, you talk about the oral tradition and how that's not usually as respected as a historical text. But do you feel that in Black culture, African-derived cultures, that the oral tradition is what keeps the culture going? Because you said it, it has the potential to correct the record or disrupt it. Yes. <laughs> yes to all of that. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think, um, and, and this is, this is, you know, one of the main arguments I'm making in this book is that um, it's this, it's the oral tradition coming out of the, you know, the, the African-American folkloric tradition that um, creates a certain kind of storytelling. Um, and this kind of storytelling isn't necessarily rooted in um, objective truth or, 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 or not. It's about the, the, um, it's about the strength of the storytelling itself. And it's about the, um, you know, again, having just enough there, but not the whole thing there so that other people can participate. And it's a collective storytelling and, you know, and it gets passed down over time and it, and it, and it moves across time and time and space. And this is very much a precursor to blues lyrics and 
blues storytelling. And so when you have blues makers in the early 20th century and beyond um, who are saying things in, in their, in their lyrics that might sound personal and sometimes they are personal, you know, there's a way to talk about the collective and still have it be personal. But um, I'm just highlighting the ways in which these folks are um, very consciously creating narratives um, that they are sharing with their audiences while also simultaneously creating sometimes personas, you know, and I'm thinking about whether it's, you know, Robert Johnson of the whole crossroads tale that he allegedly sold his soul to the devil to be a better guitar player, you know, but you have someone like um, Petey Wheatstraw who, you know, had the moniker, the devil's son-in-law and, you know, and also known as the high sheriff from hell. And so I'm drawing a line here between the Stago Lee, where at first Stago Lee was, you know, a guy who killed another guy in a bar over Stetson Hat. And eventually in that later variant, he's hanging out with the devil. And, you know, so those things get fused. So he's a bad man who's so bad that the devil, there's later variants where the devil's afraid of him. Right. And so this all kind of comes together and then you get the, the blues men and then you get the devil you know, the bedeviled bluesmen. So there's a line from Stagalee to this, this, you know, blues kind of um, expression. And then it goes from there. Um, but in terms of the correction of the record, yeah, I think, I mean, I, in one of my chapters, I have a chapter on the, on women and I have a chapter on Big Mama, you know, Big Mama Thornton's in that chapter. And so much of what I'm talking about there is the ways in which she uses oral storytelling to correct the record because big mama thornton you know is connected with two of the most important songs in the 20th century you know hound dog and ball and chain and hound dog you know lieber and staller wrote hound dog but they wrote it with her in mind with her voice in mind and she was you know by by all accounts um heavily involved obviously in arranging the song you know to sing it. And, um, and she felt very much, she took ownership of the song and felt like a co-creator because, you know, she added embellishments and different things. And obviously she brought her voice, right. That, that incredible voice. Um, and then ball and chain, she wrote, um, she composed it, but it didn't get released, um, originally. And then Janis Joplin and big brother and the holding company did a version that, that, you know, helped Janice's um, star to shine at the Monterey Pop Festival in 67. And then, you know, that song became synonymous with, you know, Janice and the Big Brother and the Holding Company. And, and, but Janice Joplin, it's important to know, was very, very vocal and very, very um, careful to give full credit to Big Mama Thornton and, um, and, 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 made sure that she got royalties and all of that. But nonetheless, Big Mama Thornton in both cases receded into the background, didn't have the same success with the with those songs, although she had great success with Hound Dog. Hound Dog was a hit for her, but obviously Elvis Presley's version, you know, sold more, et cetera. Um, but Big Mama Thornton in the 1970s, and I talk about this in the chapter in the book, 
early 1970s had this thing that she would do when she would um, introduce, um, well, she would talk about Hound Dog and, and talk about Elvis Presley. You know, she's very vocal about that. But also when she would get on stage and perform Ball and Chain, she would have this monologue and, it, and it's something that she would do every time, you know, and it would be like, this is a song that I wrote. You know, I wrote this song. This was a hit for me and Janis Joplin, you know, like she would just like say it and say it and say it. And it was her way of making sure that people understood that she um, had an, an important role in ownership. both of the songs and ownership, taking back ownership and also highlighting her important role in not just the history of blues music, but also the history of rock and roll. Right. And so she did this and it was so effective that over time, um, I think people saw hot hound dog as hers. Um, and of course, Alice Walker wrote that short story in 1955, right. That echoes that version of the story where she's the songwriter and Elvis buys the song from her a version, you know, these are versions, um, you know, hard to say definitively, but it sure looks like versions of, you know, Big Mama Thornton and Elvis Presley in that story in 1955. And, um, but, but this, I think just really speaks to the power of this oral, you know, kind of correction of the record through orality on a stage and in interviews and people just started to believe it. And, and then it's like, okay, yeah, she did write Hound Dog. It reminds me, well, in, in two tracks here. Um, when you're talking about the, the bedevilment of the character, I don't know if you've seen the, the uproar recently surrounding the hip-hop artist Little Nas X and yes. his song Montero and Call Me By Your Name and then the whole the video where he pole dances from the, the judgment room of, of heaven down into hell and then kills the devil and becomes him. It, it reminds me of, of that type of storytelling tradition mm-hmm. and and how we're now even seeing it in, I guess he's Gen Z, from all the way back in 1895, you taking on this persona, you cavorting and colluding and in cahoots with the devil mm-hmm. from the blues. And now we see it mm-hmm. in this, you know, this, this man who is a hip hop artist, but who also is... LGBT identifying and is using that to tell his own story and taking on that persona too. Mm-hmm. It is quite it's quite fascinating. Yeah. So you talk, you say that, you know, these artists, and I, I guess this extends to all artists and all genres in some respects, not just the blues, they invent these personas that resist racial, social, economic, and gender depression. How? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, I mean, (sighs) big mama Thornton is, is, you know, an obvious example, but, um, another example, which I can pull from the fictional work, um, is, and, and this was, um, something that I really kind of enjoyed exploring in the color purple and, you know, and thinking about Suge Avery, who is, 
you know, the timing in the color purple is like, it's really hard to know where you are in terms of what time, what time, what historical time frame is it? But it's something like 1919 to 1949, that novel spans. So, but at the beginning we get Shogavery, who's really supposed to be like a classic blues player. You know, she's supposed to be like a Bessie Smith or, you know, something like that. You know, she's transgressive and not respectable and the, you know, causes moral panics in the town, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and so she does all of that. But what I what I ended up writing about, I ended up writing about her and the way in which she, um, um, you know, and also I want to mention Celie for a second, because, of course, Celie is it's an epistolary novel. So, of course, everything is through Celie's perspective. Right. Like she's writing all of these people um, into existence. We only get her point of view. So it's important to remember that she's always there. So we only get the story to the degree that she wants to share it with us. But what she shares with us is this idea of Shug, um, you know, through storytelling. There's a moment where she talks to Celie about her background and about her relationship with Albert and the way it was once upon a time, kind of trying to recuperate his image for Celie because of course, Celie and Albert have a completely different kind of a relationship than the one that Suge enjoyed with him in Once Upon a Time. And so there's this moment where she's, you know, where she's talking about her background and Albert and, and, and you know, the, the humor he had and the dancing and all of that. Um, and, and this whole thing where she gets to also talk about the way Albert's father wouldn't accept his, you know, his son's paternity and, you know, assume that Suge was a tramp or whatever. And, um, and that, and that, you know, there's no way that she, you know, that they could um, trust uh, her. And so she takes this opportunity to talk about that orally to Celie and get her side of the story told, you know, to, to get her side um, out there. And so there's that um, where she resists this patriarchal oppression um, uh, and this idea that because we don't know who her daddy is, that's how Albert's dad puts it, then how can we trust her? You know, because we can only trust her if men have vouched for her in one way or another or men can speak for her. Um, so there's that. But also I, I spend a little time talking about Squeak and that I, that I particularly loved discussing because Squeak doesn't get written about. Um, um, I, I don't think Squeak has been written about um, before. And so um, as far as I know, and so I talk about Squeak as a, you know, and, and she becomes a blues woman in this text. And, um, and she, you know, and this of course happens after her trauma, you know, after being raped by her stepfather um, uh, and but she becomes a, a blues woman and it's not even necessarily in, I mean, she does it by singing, but it feels, but my argument in the book is that um, she does it as much through storytelling by reclaiming her name. You know, she kind of does it the opposite way. Blues folks have these really exciting monikers, right? But she, uh, was squeak and then becomes Mary Agnes. Yeah. Right. Like when she gets to the point where she's ready to share her voice, 
and and take back her power, she says, call me Mary Agnes, you know. Um, and uh, so I talk a lot about how she uses narrative and storytelling to be a blues woman as much as she's using singing and sound. Wow. Um, it there have been so many iterations of the color purple that I thought of the movie, the play, and the book all at once. Um, there's a line in the play where right before Suge Avery comes on and does her number where the chorus of women's harmonized, she's a woman of low moral character mm-hmm. that, that I remember that just really makes me laugh. So mm-hmm. I want to transition into a quick speed round and then I'll let you go. So who is your favorite author? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I have, I have, I'll just pick one, you know, it's, it's hard to say this is, you know, but I, I really, really love Toni Morrison. I'm a big fan of Toni Morrison. Um, I happen to really love the bluest eye, um, you know, her first one and, um, and I've taught it many times and um, I just, I just think it's just a breathtaking work and it's such an impressive first novel. Um and and every time I read it, I find something else, and um, I never get tired of teaching it. Um, who? Well, I use that for one. So <laughs> I love I love Toni Morrison. Uh, what is your favorite book? I I could I could say so. There's a wonderful book, a book that I love quite a lot. That's more recent. Um, again, this is not my favorite favorite, but it's one that I. That I that I love a lot. Um, uh, so Caucasia by Danzy Senna um, is a book that um, I've also taught multiple times, and I think it's just such a wonderful, nuanced book. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, but it's um, it's about two girls who are um, biracial girls, half black, half white girls who um, are just a few years apart and um, black dad, white mom, and one girl um, looks phenotypically black and the other girl looks phenotypically white and the parents split and the one that looks presents as white goes with the white parent. The one that presents as black goes with the black parent. And, and it's, and we're really in the minds of the one who presents as white. Um, and, but she uh, is black and feels black and suffers. And it's an amazing story. And um, I love that book. Who is your favorite blues singer or rock artist since you're a, a rock a rock fan? <laughs> Again, really hard. <laughs> but um, in terms of blues, I really have fallen in love with Big Mama Thornton. And I always liked Big Mama Thornton, but I just have um, in reading about her, learning about her being in her world for a while. Um, it also really I've had a lot of empathy or yeah, empathy for her. Um, in reading about her story. So I would put Big Mom up there for blues. And um, and for rock, that's just too difficult. Um, but I guess <laughs> there's so many artists, but um, 
how about I say from childhood, because I feel like sometimes the bands that we love in childhood, those are the ones that kind of imprint on us in a certain way. Um, and so a rock band that I just loved a whole lot from childhood um, was Blondie. I was a big, big, big Blondie fan as a, as a kid. And um, uh, so that's one. That's one band. What is your favorite blues song? Um, so I really, oh, again, hard, but I really, so another artist I like a lot is Charlie Patton. And he has a song called um, A Spoonful Blues, which, um, you know, speaking of how um, music, how blues narratives move across time, you also have this, of course, happening with the music. And um, um, uh, so that was a that was a song that had come from another song and then begat another song around, you know, named similarly. Um, but a spoonful of blues is is one of the ones I love by Charlie Patton. Which iconic blues figure, real or imagined, do you most identify with? <laughs> you know what? It probably comes back to Big Mama Thornton again. You know, and it and and I think it's more like that. So when I was researching Big Mama Thornton for this book. Um, and I researched a lot of people for this book, engaging with her history and really getting the strong, powerful sense of her impact, but also seeing how she struggled to have her voice heard and to have people respect her, her impact. Um, those were the only times where I actually, I remember like tearing up when I was doing research, reading about her. Um, and so I guess I could relate in some, some ways to just, um, wanting to get your work out there in the world, wanting people to hear you and hear your voice, um, and knowing and, and hoping that you're contributing something, but it's, you know, we all know as writers, we don't always get the <laughs> immediate feedback that we want to get. So, you know, I think I related to her somewhat from that perspective, just being a, a writer and, you know, an artist and wanting my voice out there. But also just I just felt, um, yeah, such empathy for her when I was writing about her. I think we're going to have the same answer for this last question, but I'm going to ask anyway. What Black blues singer do you think should get the movie treatment a la Bessie <laughs> Smith with Queen Latifah or Ma Rainey with Riley Davis or we had Cadillac Records? Is it yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would be so, so are there. You write that screenplay since you know you have oh. those film production roots. Oh my goodness! From your mouth to God's ears, yes, that would be great. <laughs> we're, gonna, um, we're gonna put that in the universe and say, Lord, that <laughs> Kim is gonna, Doctor Kim is gonna give us the, the, the big, the big Mama Thornton movie. All right. So you talk about you know wanting to get your work out and know that you're contributing as a writer. Have you embraced where you are as a writer or do you still struggle with, you know, exactly what it is that you're doing because it's kind of out in the ether type of thing? Yeah. So this was, you know, this, this book that came out in December is my first book and I am. Um, you got two you more know, on the way. And I have two, I have two more on the way. 
And I'm, and I'm, and I'm so grateful and so excited about that. But I do want to say something that I think is maybe, might be helpful to somebody. You know, I am, I'm just going to say it. I'm 51, right? And I'm going to be 52 this year. And so this is a long time coming. Um, I started, you know, as I said, I wanted to be a writer at nine. Um, I articulated that to family. Uh, I put it out there. I went to school to be a playwright at 18. Um, You know, I've been at this a long time. And, um, and, and, and finally I have a, a, you know, a book out there and I'm, and I'm so excited about it. And I have, you know, as I said, as you said, a couple more on the way, but, um, but I think it's important for people to, to, you know, I don't know, to, to hear these stories about folks who maybe publish for the first time a book, you know, I published other things, shorter things as a journalist in my thirties, but you know, if your goal is to publish a book length, something to know that um, it can happen at 50, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to happen at 30 or, you know, 25 or, you know, and if it doesn't, that means it won't happen. It can happen. But yeah, this is a long time coming. And, um, and I, so I'm having all the feelings still of that first book and, you know, I want people to read it. I want people to know about it. I want to get it out there as much as I can. Um, I want people to not be afraid of it. You know, it's a university press. And so somebody might be like, oh, that means it's going to be, you know, jargony and hard to read, but it's not. I promise, <laughs> you know, it's, and I think, and I hope if you like stories and storytelling, which anyone who's listening to this podcast does, um, yeah, that you might um, give it a shot. I'm just going to make a note. If anybody is afraid of a university press or book that they think is going to be academic, remember Disha Filia from episode three, her book is on a university press and it's fiction and short stories. So do not be afraid. Um, last two questions. Do you see writing as your creative pursuit still since you've done so many other things and you're in academia or do you see it as your career? Oh, wow. That's an interesting, well, yeah, no, I see, I see, um, and, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you are making that distinction between academic and writer, um, is that, am I wrong? In a sense, like, yes, you're a professor and academia has fed you. Mm-hmm. So it, is writing still like the side hustle and not the main pursuit or is it the career? Like, yes, I oh, teach, yeah. but I, I teach, but no, this is what I do. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, um, so. And somebody, I've been asked this before, you know, like, do you consider yourself a writer or do you consider yourself an academic or do you consider yourself a writer? Do you consider yourself a scholar? I, I, I feel like at this point, um, I should say also, and I didn't mention this, but I also am working on a memoir, right? And I had a a piece, um, a piece of that, that was published by Long Reads last year, um, um, 
um, called Johnny Rotten, My Mom and Me, which is about my mom. My mom is now no longer with us, but it was about, um, you know, how we used rock music to bond and, and cope with a lot of turmoil in our lives uh, and trauma. So, um, so I, so I still have that too, but for me, all of these things all connect now, you know, everything I do now, they're all just stories to me. Now they're all just connected to writing, um, to music in one way or the other, whether it's scholarly, whether it's journalism or whether it's creative writing, the memoir or, you know, narrative nonfiction. Um, but in terms of your question, I'm a writer. I feel like that's what I am, but I'm also a teacher and I'm also a colleague and I'm also, you know, I do these things too, but I feel like the thing that gets me up in the morning, the thing that, you know, propels me through my day every day is this opportunity to, um, to tell stories. And when I'm teaching, I get to engage other people's stories, right. And I get to um, participate in that. And that's really wonderful and introduce my students to these stories, which I think are really important, but, but yeah, I think I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm a writer. Okay. And so final question, you are a self-proclaimed writer since age of nine, claiming it again at 51. <laughs> You've got two more books on the way as well as a memoir. So when you're dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about the lasting literary, your lasting literary legacy? You know, I, I would hope, what I would love is if somebody would say something about maybe um, the, the moving between these different forms, um, different approaches, and maybe seeing that we don't have to put such strict categories around things that actually, you know, maybe that could be a small legacy um, if somebody were to talk about my work later that I, you know, the through line is music because I'm obsessed with it. But, you know, if I write a piece, you know, a journalistic reported piece for No Depression one week, and then I'm working on, you know, the post-production or the production on my scholarly, you know, creative nonfiction thing. And then I'm also simultaneously working on rewrites for my memoir. Um, I don't actually see them as all like distinctly different. I feel like they're just different modes of storytelling. And I would hope that that would be something that people would notice later that, oh, she was a, a writer who worked in all these different genres and had all these different approaches, but yeah, she was just a storyteller. That's cool. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Thank you so much. No problem. Big thank you to Dr. Kimberly Mack for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Dr. Kim's book, Fictional Blues, Narrative Self-Invention, from Bessie Smith to Jack White, out now from the University of Massachusetts Press. And if you're not following Dr. Kim... Follow her on Twitter. She's at Dr. Kimberly Mack. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you hear, 
leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you'd like to hear next on the show. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's B-L-K and Published. And to keep up with me, head to my website, newrights.com, www.newrites.com. Or follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holler at y'all next time. Peace.